uh, trigger warning, strong language, sex references, and mention of suicide. Hello, welcome to the Film Geek Collective, ladies, gentlemen, and others. I'd like to welcome you to my thoughts on Boogie Nights, a film which I quite cherish, honestly. But uh, keeping in mind that this, this episode will be explicit in nature, there will be strong language, sex references, and uh, there may be some other triggers in there, so be careful. If uh, any of that affects you in any way, you might want to skip this one. But, you know, this episode will definitely be explicit. So, yeah. I thought, let's give the shout-outs right now. I thought I'd give the shout-outs at the beginning. Shout-outs to Tessie Cat, Elsie Cool, Film, Mama Tig, Zach Ascot, Real Sharks Podcast, a.k.a. Ribby Shaku in Japanese next to their name. Which, uh, by the way, Real Sharks, thank you for uh, shouting me out in every episode of your podcast. That's fantastic. Cinemanus Podcast, Schlock Luster Video, Apple Park Films, The Chris White, Autistic in Melbourne, Naked Airplane, Still Mellow, Heavenly Imagine, Rose Bagali, Larry1937, 2621, Talk Me Into, Films with Amy, Zeus, Caution Spoilers, JGWR, Classic Blonde, L Salt One, and finally, Eric Sloss, 1383. And also, I would like to shout out my belly unicorn, who is absolutely fantastic. Um, you know, all of you are absolutely fantastic. Now, without further ado, let's get on with the podcast. I know abrupt end to the music, and you notice my voice probably got louder because I moved the phone from the speaker to the computer from where I am now. I mean, you, you get what I mean. <laughs> Just, I'm open about behind the scenes sort of things, but you know. So uh, let's delve right in. I, I, I've been trying, I've been trying to uh, do non-spoiler things and then spoilers, but I'm not sure how to go about this one. Well, I'll go with the non-spoiler things first. So, okay. Bert Reynolds didn't want to do a film about porn. He turned down his eventual role seven times because he'd be afraid he'd let his fans down. In fact, he, he angrily said to director Paul Thomas Anderson to leave him alone because he wasn't interested in the role. So, Paul Thomas Anderson said he should carry his current attitude to the film because he could be nominated for an Oscar. In fact, I, he did win at least one award for this movie. But Reynolds, though, later saw a rough cut and regretted having anything to do with the movie. Jack Horner, Burt Reynolds' role, was almost played by Albert Brooks, Jack Nicholson, Harvey Keitel, and Bill Murray, believe it or not. I mean, Bill Murray. <laughs> Imagine that. That, that. that would be crazy. That'd be insane. <laughs> oh, man. I, I would have liked to see him deliver um, both laughs and dramatic stuff in his uh, role because, you know, later career Bill Murray, that's more dramas, you know, that sort of thing. On a side note, Burt Reynolds rejected the role of Han Solo. Early in the film, John C. Riley's character Reed Rothschild, um, he says, you know, he says people think he looks like Han Solo, which is quite funny. It's based on a short film called The Dirk Diggler Story, which was modelled after the style of This Is Spinal Tap. However, the short film was entirely redone to be in the movie itself. The original actor in the short film was someone called Michael Stein. He makes a cameo in one of the stereo store scenes with Don Cheadle. So there's going to be no Boogie Nights 2, the director confirmed. William H. Macy didn't want him to read the script, but he did. He loved it and he joined. Also, did you know there exists a copy of Boogie Nights, a rough cut? Now, it was pirated before it officially went to theatres. However, the cut was only intended for the studio New Line Cinema to edit the trailer from. But it has many scenes that just aren't there in the version we got. <laughs> in addition, well, you know, the scenes were never really specified, so I can't really say, but... In addition, none of the scenes appear in the deleted scenes section. 
40 seconds of content were cut to avoid an NC-17 in America. For those outside of America, NC-17 is for sexually explicit content, and they have very arbitrary standards. You show pubic hair during a sex scene, that bumps you up from an R to an NC-17. I mean, why? People tend to be naturally hairy. What is wrong with that? America. American censorship. Oh, man. It's a clusterfuck, I mean. It's crazy. <laughs> I, for one, would love to have that officially released because I refuse to pirate even if I own the movie. So, yeah. The technique they used for the in-movie 70s pornography snippets, the reels, if you will, what you're seeing is a projection of the film reel it was on onto another screen, and then they shot that with the standard 35mm cameras. For those who don't know, 30 I mean, you likely know, but 35mm was really the standard film stock for Hollywood. You know what I mean? 16 was for the cheaper people. Well, not cheaper. I don't mean to say that in a bad way, but 16 was for the people on lower budgets. 35 has been used by some low-budget films like Halloween, but that's beside the point. You know, the really expensive productions used 70, but now everything's digital, and in fact there's a bit of film versus video debate in this movie um, just a little bit later. Anyway, I better not say too much before the... In fact, from now on, just so I don't risk anything, I'm going to say spoilers ahead. Spoilers ahead for the entire movie. Just uh, just in case, all right? So, yeah, in fact, supposedly, the fictional porn film's dialogue was copied from real porn films to avoid criticisms that it sounded fake. Uh, quite a few porn films are in public domain, apparently, Supposedly, the film, the porn film Debbie Does Dallas, I did a research into pornography and because, you know, I, I thought it would help discuss Boogie Nights and considering it uh, centers around the golden age of porn, you know, I'm, I'm going to be neutral on porn. I'm not going to be negative or positive about it. I'm just going to be neutral because all I'm talking about here is the movie, okay? Um, yeah. When, uh, in fact, it's crazy that... Uh, some people didn't know what they were in for. When Dirk Diggler wins the Golden Phallus Award, 100 extras attended in clothes from the 1970s. They were kept in the dark about the kind of movie it was, except it had Burt Reynolds. So when an actress came onto the stage and said Dirk won the award, the crowd was supposed to applaud, but she'd put in some sexually explicit language in her line. Half the extras got offended, they left, which caused a filming delay. And then another group of them were brought in, but everything was explained to them. Dirk Diggler, recording his poor cover of You Got the Touch, was shot in the exact same studio Jesse's Girl was recorded in. Now, speaking of Jesse's Girl, Alfred Molina, who plays a drug dealer later in the film, never had heard either that song or Sister Christian. He sings along to both, so for three days he played them over and over till he just knew them by heart. So earlier I said I did some research into pornography of the time, but, you know, honestly, I only... Like, it was a little bit, because, you know, porn films themselves just really are not that interesting, honestly. They're, they're boring, they're boring stories uh, <laughs> to me. So, you know, from, from what I see of them and all the parodies and stuff. So let's just clear it up and leave it at that. So, yeah. Although I can't really say about the accuracy of this movie, but directors and stars from 70s pornography, from the golden age of porn, a lot of them criticised this film because apparently it was inaccurate, one of the only outliers from this was Paul Thomas, not related to the director, Paul Thomas Anderson, but this Paul Thomas starred in adult films for a long time. He proceeded on to directing him and became incredibly respected. He said it was pretty accurate, aside from some things. You know, I, I, uh, in my research, I heard that uh, 
Some people in the porn world have bad experiences. Other people in the porn world are just fine. So, yeah. Overall, I would like to mention that scene where Sister Christian and Jesse's girl were played in also 99 Luftballoons. Fantastic. I did say spoilers. So, here goes. There's a fantastic scene where it's just where it's just building up and building up. And, you know, uh, they had firecrackers just popping repeatedly. And I reckon that it was a really, like, suspenseful scene in a way. Not in a traditional Hitchcock sort of way, but sort of bang, bang, bang. Even even when he's pretending he's going to shoot himself, but then it just goes, the firecracker goes bang, and then he just doesn't. He just doesn't, you know? But I'll get back to that a bit later, actually, because I've got some more trivia that I want to say to you, of course. So, yeah, where were we? Hmm? <laughs> At one point, you know, where Paul Thomas Anderson and Burt Reynolds, they, Burt Reynolds thought Paul Thomas Anderson was disrespecting him. So, uh, apparently, according to the first assistant director named John Wildermus, he told this story. Bert got so frustrated, he pulled Paul outside into the backyard and started yelling at him like a father, you know. You fucking little punk kid, don't tell me what to do. And then Tom Link was there, apparently. He added, all of a sudden, we saw fists flying. We saw some fists flying from Burt Reynolds. I hope I don't get in trouble for saying this, but it was like he was trying to punch our director in the face. And, yeah, apparently uh, Burt Reynolds also got in a bit of a scuffle with Thomas Jane, who plays the third man in the drug deal scene I was mentioning. Um, Apart from, okay, Alfred Molina and uh, John C. Riley and Mark Wahlberg, the other man's Thomas Jane, just to give you an idea. So, yeah, a bit of trivia about some real-life history. William H. Macy's character, Little Bill, has a loose basis on the pornographic actor named Carl Jammer. Carl's girlfriend at the time, Jill Kelly, was secretly involved with P.J. Sparks, a pornographic actress, but also with a male porn actor. Carl Jammer ended up, much like Little Bill in the movie, shooting himself in the head. Only Carl did it in the front lawn, and his fictional counterpart did it in the house. So, yeah, he... uh, he adapted at least one or two real life real life stories from the uh, from the real you get what I mean, but yeah, I think in terms of the character change, like all lack thereof, there is such a thing as static characters, characters who don't change or don't change all that much, and then there's dynamic characters, and so the standard we have is dynamic characters. You expect someone to uh, if someone. If someone maybe is a bigot at the beginning in like a film against racism or something like that, and then they open their eyes to their horrible ways and they see the difference and they become different over the course of the film, that's a dynamic character arc for those who don't know. But static is if the man did not change at all or or very, very little. Maybe he keeps his view and something else changes. I don't know. But... uh, Paul Thomas Anderson didn't really have this in Boogie Nights. The result is still a wide, wildly entertaining ensemble, but he just, you know, he he was more focused on, I guess, the interactions. I think he was more focused on the interactions and trying to really change him because the characters are supposed to be a bit over their head all the time and, you know, Mark Wahlberg goes insane over the course of the movie in a in a sort of way. And, you know, they make such a big deal about his penis. They make a big deal about Dirk Diggler's penis. And, you know, by the time we have gone through the whole movie and we're thinking, you know, hey, uh, I would like to see how big his penis is. Well, (laughs) he's gone totally insane and he's been repeating his mantra. I'm a big, bright, shining star or something like that. You know what I mean? But, 
yeah, you only get to see the penis after he's totally flipped his shit, basically. And I like how I like how those mirror scenes really contrast to each other. The first one is just him talking to himself normally, a bit of motivation. The second one is his ego is growing. The third one, he's basically gone totally insane. You know what I mean? But yeah, yeah. It's like, you know, you wanted to see something earlier, but now that you're now that you're interested seeing where this goes, you're not so interested in seeing his penis anymore. I mean, you are, but there's other things to worry about, you know? Sort of like a MacGuffin, like the uh, the briefcase in Pulp Fiction, a little bit. But, uh, you know, Hitchcock often used the MacGuffin, as you would probably know. So, yeah, life appears perfect, in a way, in this movie, you know? And he, like, <laughs> pardon the pun, but Mark Wahlberg gets uh, sucked in by a blowjob from a porn actress. <laughs> I'm sorry, that was that was a great pun. Um, but, you know, movies tend to stylize sex to look great. The loud moaning, the oversized penis, the unnaturally large breasts. But then, you know, he's, he's just spoiled and it turns into an addiction for him. One where he's never truly satisfied. One where he just exhausts himself trying to get, you know, it appears great and all at first, but then it just goes to complete shit. So, yeah, that, that's what I think in this one. So, yeah, some things I thought about the film. Overall, you know, other people have said Robert Altman and Martin Scorsese seem to really influence the film. I know Paul Thomas Anderson's a big fan of both. The red tint in a couple shots in one scene when they have the new porn star, Donny, sorry, Johnny Doe coming in. Um, the red lighting reminded me a bit of that. Uh, there's a scene in Goodfellas, I think somewhat early, where they're, where they're trying to bury parts of a body. Um, you know, the overlapping dialogue and shots that take advantage of the whole width of the screen is a bit like Nashville. Admittedly, though, I've only seen Nashville from Robert Altman. I've not seen MASH or Shortcuts or any of the other ones that play up. You know, I still got quite a lot to catch up on, but that's what this is for, right? Also, big format change, I've decided that uh, it's movies that I've already seen because Martin Scorsese, I was searching online. Sorry to get off topic for a bit, but I was searching online and, you know, Martin gave this bit of advice um, on this article, and it was great. I forget what the article is now, but let's get on with what he said. He said, you know, the first watch, I'm going to paraphrase, the first watch is not to analyze. The first watch is to just sit back and enjoy the movie, and then, you know, you can you can analyze it on further things. Sorry, further viewings. I mean, you get what I mean. I, I think I agree with that. So, therefore, I think that I would do that in the format from now on. So I've seen Boogie Nights once before, so that counts. So yeah, the first shot is fantastic. I'm sure plenty of people have mentioned the first shot, but let's see, it goes from the sign to a little bit sideways because they had to hide a piece of equipment. And then it goes down and through the club. And, you know, you have at least half a dozen characters being introduced in this one take, you know and how they use the blocking, how they use, you know, one of them going through the club to get to the next couple of people and all that. I think that's just great. I think blocking can really make a scene, can really direct you where to where to have your eyes. Sorry, that that sense didn't make sentence. That sentence didn't make sense. <laughs> you see, you see what I did there. Okay, um, so yeah. And it's also been pointed out that uh, there are some foreshadowing shots in this scene a slow push into Burt Reynolds and another slow push into Eddie Adams, who uh, will later be known as Dirk Diggler, obviously. But uh, yeah, 
I also like the film's habit of uh, long-ish takes, you know, even one lasting 19 seconds that catches up to Burt Reynolds or uh, Wild Bill locking up his door at the end of a hallway, you know, peeping around the corner, being suspicious, which heavily foreshadows the New Year's Eve scene where he shoots his wife and then shoots himself. So, uh, yeah, um, he, uh, yeah, he finds his wife cheating with someone else in that first scene, so it cuts to that afterward, but still, I like just having somewhat extended, more lifelike shots, where it doesn't hurt the pacing of the film, but it's, they're just there, you know, you know, you know something might happen. Uh, another one where it pans around, Dirk Diggler's, I'm just going to call him Dirk to make it simpler, but at this point he's Eddie Adams, and so it's panning around his room showing everything he's interested in, stopping at him, practicing martial arts moves in the mirror, you know, it'll establish his previous life in one pan, and I think that's fantastic, the less shots in which you can do something, the better, you know, but you've got to make sure, like, you you know, you've got to make sure you you got to know when to do long takes or you got to cut to this and that, of course. But, you know, I think there was a good bit of subtext in one of the scenes that came soon after that. It's when uh, Eddie and his mother, sorry, Dirk and his mother are arguing. And, you know, the mother says, you work at a car wash. And he's like, what? And the mother says, you work at a car wash. You work at a nightclub. School never occurred to you. So, yeah, I think that, uh, you know, she just doesn't take what he wants to do seriously. I mean, you sort of sympathise with uh, Eddie slash Dirk because, you know, what if you had a dream that... Well, you get what I mean. But (laughs) very next scene, of course, he's with Burt Reynolds and he's going through the party and I always did like the music choice there. Mama told me not to come. (laughs) As he first enters the pond well, because that's, you know, I, I swear that was like put in there deliberately. Of course it was. They'd have to pay big rights for the music. You've got to really think about where to put it. Uh, yeah, I think that, uh, there are some good shots, uh, I was mentioning before how the, how the first blowjob he receives is perfect, but sex isn't perfect without true love, it turns from a fleeting illusion of perfection to a painful addiction where he's unable to maintain erections without drugs, so, yeah, in terms of, uh, you know, people normally say sex scenes are gratuitous in movies, you know, I mean, some of them are, just look at Watchmen, but some of them can really make a film. So when you have a sequence like in the middle of Boogie Nights where they're doing the porn shoot and you're seeing, you know, uh, they, they're they trying to sort of follow the directions and all that, you you know, you got to see that. It's like a suspenseful sequence. If a drummer's going to drum right or if, it's, if a guy's going to do a karate match right, you're still going to see the sex in this case. So I don't think you could call any of the sex in this film gratuitous, you know. Uh, <laughs> yeah, like... I think that uh, one person makes the argument within this movie, you know, how do you keep them in the theatre after they've come? (laughs) Uh, Because, you know, they want to make better stories, supposedly for the porn movies, but they're still very cheesy and the dialogue is very ham-fisted and all that. But, you know, I think that... uh, I think that the argument... Going back to the argument between Dirk and his mother, it's when they're in his room and she's staring down posters... Um, Paul Thomas Anderson's amazing at creating intense scenes like that. There's one later on where uh, Dirk is asked to uh, masturbate by another man, but then the same man turns around once his uh, once the rest of his thug crew seems to arrive and they beat the shit out of him because they're homophobes. I mean, that is emotionally brutal. There's a difference between 
you know, there's a difference between just presenting violence and having the emotional brutality to it. When you care for a character, you feel the punches, no matter how graphic the violence in question may be, you know. It, it could be just a standard scene. Um, to be fair, this scene is quite fairly violent, but still. You know, uh, I, uh, I was mentioning that uh, I love the extended takes in the movie. Um, one that's talked about less often is when they're, it's partially when they when Dirk is first going into the porn industry, but, uh, you know, it's the one where Reed Rothschild says the Han Solo line, you know, um, understated and yet underrated. And another tape, sorry, another take where it goes underwater, which is fantastic. Apparently it's a shout out to a film known as I Am Cuba, which, uh, haters of that particular film called I Am Not Cuba. So, yeah. In fact, did you know that uh, people tend to, you know, muddle up their words when they're angry, of course. So, you know, he's just, he's just, you know, he catches, sorry, um, little Bill catches his wife having sex with someone in public with several people watching. And he says, you know, she's got his, she's, he's got his ass in a cock when she's meant, sorry, when he's meant to say cock in her ass. Because, you know, people mix up words when they're that angry or when they're talking too fast, like me, you know. <laughs> but, uh, yeah, I think that, uh, yeah, I am just when, if you're asking when the three instances of Dirk looking in the mirror and motivating himself are, one's 46 minutes, one's 96 minutes, and one is at the very end. So it's fairly spread out throughout the movie, almost like uh, thirds. So, yeah, I think that... Uh, yeah, I think that uh, when, they're, when they're trying to hype up how big his penis is throughout the film, I like how it just cuts away or they, there was a particularly clever bit of blocking, in fact, in which, uh, you know, he, his penis would be visible, but then someone just puts their arm in front and you magically don't see it, <laughs> which is crazy because it's the type of shot where you think you would see things, but it's just that type of subtle blocking that really blocks it out, you know. It's just after he's. It's just after he's done his uh, first porn scene with the amber waves. Of course, um, I like how split screen uses time. I know people at Cinefix, the people who run Cinefix, seem to hate split screen. I love Cinefix, by the way. They're an amazing YouTube channel, but uh, I disagree with them about split screen. Split screen can be used in a really good way. Uh, yeah, yeah. Um, let me point out that sometimes we see jump cuts in movies. Not necessarily in this movie, but in others. So jump cuts are basically, you know, if, if someone's if someone's walking along and the camera remains at the same angle and, uh, you know, it stops and, you know, they're saying, what about X? And, you know, cut in the same place. What about Y? You know, it appears they sort of jump in the frame, hence a jump cut. The film uses a variation, however, where, you know, I, I would still call it a jump cut, even if it moves a little, but it fades instead of cutting. So just after he wins an award and shows someone around the building. So, yeah, I think that uh, a pattern that I notice in this movie is another thing that I really like about it. A drunk Philip Seymour Hoffman, who plays Scotty. Well, you know, the actor wasn't drunk. I was mixing up my words there. Whoops. But, you know, he's trying to kiss Dirk once and then there's a bit of an exchange and Scotty clearly regrets coming out because, you know, it's captured all in one sort of take. I think it might be steady cam or slightly handheld or whatever. Not not shaky or anything. Probably a steady cam if I had to guess. But uh, I like how 
some very tense or awkward moments tend to be filmed in that type of way because it really just adds to an energy that wouldn't be prevalent if the camera was perfectly still in those moments, if you get what I mean. I think they did those in the 70s a bit too, like in the... I can't think of an example right now. Let's let's move on from that. Um, people would probably love me to mention the long take in the New Year's Eve party at 81 minutes. Little Bill walks through the party, shoots his cheating lover dead, and then himself. And in fact, another little touch that I really like is he's, he's told to smile at the beginning of the scene. But then... He only smiles before he shoots himself, sort of adding to his, you know, craziness by this time. He's clearly just so pissed off he's gone crazy. But I, I, like, I like how much ground this take covers from the front, through the lounge room, to the hallway, to opening the door at the end, a little bit away from the frame, back to the lounge room as he's overwhelmed. You know, you can be overwhelmed with the character. If, if there was even one cut in this scene, it might break the momentum a little bit. You know, you've got to keep it up with a long take. But, you know, the countdown for New Year's Eve really accentuates the gunshots and the scene just comes together perfectly. So, yeah, I think that, uh, you know, I would like to also mention a less flashy but no less bad moment. It's when the colonel is accused of a horrible, horrible crime and he's convicted. No, he's convicted, not accused. I, I won't say what the crime is if you've seen the movie, you know. Um, but he hangs up on the colonel arrested for such a sick, sick crime. And things can only get worse from there, you know? The whole second half, in in a way, I think this film is structured in a duality sort of way. Sorry, a jewel sort of way. Sorry, you know, sorry, you know what I mean. Like, The Shining was structured with one half and the second half that were different, and Kubrick often did that. So life, life without consequences was the first half of Boogie Nights. And Life With Consequences was the second half. But what unites the halves is a family that will never break, through better or worse. I apologise if you have some background noises in there, but, you know, I'm just, uh, I'm recording, I'm recording at uh, a friend's house. So, you know, that's why you've been hearing the old computer noise. It's all good. So, yeah, I think that, uh, I think that uh, the moment when the, the moment when uh, Dirk masturbates for the eventual for the man who's eventually meant to be a homophobe, there's a bit, a very subtle indication shit's going to go down. Typically, in a film, if you see someone go left to right or something go left to right, that that's supposed to be morally right. But if you see him go right to left, that's morally wrong. So you you can you can probably tell if you know about that that the man is going to turn out to be a homophobe. So you know, I think that. Uh, you know, Joe definitely turns against him. Yeah, Joe was the man's name. I think the minimalist foreboding music that plays during this and, you know, it also cross-cuts to uh, a frat boy trying to uh, trying to uh, carelessly uh, have sex with the roller girl. You know, that the frat boy who does it carelessly and doesn't make it look good according to uh, Jack Horner, you know. I think that uh, it it signals not just the downfall of pornography into video or the downfall, like, I think it signals also the downfall of lives. Just that very, if you notice it, if at all, there's like the two notes that sort of repeat themselves a little bit, just very ominously. We realise that Dirk is just pushing himself. He is struggling to masturbate for the man. This contrasted with the roller girl having sex with a frat boy, 
is just adds to the effect because clearly, you know, it's bad sexual experiences for both of them. And, you, you know, it, we can tell it's going way too far. Why would they even, why would they even sink so low as to let a guy in to a, a, a car like that or, or whatever to do that? You know, that, that's just crazy, a random guy. So, yeah, I think that it definitely builds up cross-cutting right before the beating of, uh, of Dirk Diggler that is cross-cut with Jack Horner and Roller Girl beating the man who criticised them, who uh, also had the bad sexual encounter, and that, that really turned sour. Anxiety heightens with screamed profanities, merciless lip punching kicks, and lack of composition on account of their respective attackers only resolved when we're left in a state of shock. We should have seen this coming, and we did, but we just weren't prepared. And right after this is a convenience store robbery, keeping up the stakes, raising them. I mean, at first it starts normal, and we find out these scenes occur right around Christmas, in fact, a time of peace. So another man comes in, threatens the clerk with a gun, repeatedly calls him a motherfucker, but the timing is just right. The Christmas song says, sleep in heavily peace, as blood splatters all over Don Cheadle's shirt, you know, the stereo guy from earlier. Expert timing in resolving a tense scene. We seem to have... That was the pattern I was talking about earlier. The rise-fall pattern going on. And just in time for the title card. Long way down, one last thing. So in this in this next scene, um, Dirk says something about fixing the vet, meaning a Corvette he crashed in a previous cut, but the scene was deleted, and it was made that they never crashed, despite that that little piece of evidence of the deleted scene still made it in somehow. So yeah. So the coming down is planning to make a drug deal. If this is the new neutrality, then when do we feel safe? We don't. It's as unpredictable for us as it is for the characters, but we know it's going to rise. You know the feeling when you think you can do something, but it turns into a clusterfuck of emotion when you have to do it? A positive example would be asking your crush out to a dance. A negative example is this. Dirk and his friends planning to do a drug deal with a man played by Alfred Molina. And I was mentioning that scene earlier, but... Overall, 20 firecrackers pop and one more is a dud. They in fact get more frequent as the deal goes on, a perfect way to build anxiety, as is the brief nervous laughing. Now the firecrackers seem to indeed adjust the rhythm of the scene, but still we don't know when it will go off. And we do see a gun very briefly. Circumstances make the bangs even worse. You know, just uh, the sight of the gun, Alfred Molina pretending to commit suicide by quote-unquote blasting under the chin. And in fact... I think my favourite touch about this scene is the 47 to 50 second shot of Dirk's smile turning to his mouth closing, eyes widening a little, head in hand, and it's great as he realises his drug deal just went wrong and Alfred Molina's about to go apeshit on him. So yeah, I think that another interesting thing about this scene is that uh, there's a slightly handheld camera for Todd, um, the uh, played by the Thomas Jane, who's got, who got in a scuffle with Burt Reynolds, as I said earlier, uh, as well as, you know, the director got in a scuffle too, but I said that earlier. But, you know, that's one of the men. Todd has a slightly handheld camera on him, and there's a stable camera for Dirk and Reed, who are hiding behind the counter before they think about running from the building as Alfred Molina shoots at them. Another quieter cross-cut after that scene is where Amber Waves calms a crying man down, and that's shown right after Dirk apologizes to Jack Horner. That's sort of the coming down from the previous, well, you know, the previous scenes. Now, I always, to end the movie, we, of course, well, it's not 
I don't think it's really quite the end because there's the scene where he shows his penis. But yeah, I always do like musical montages. Maybe I'm in the minority here, but God Only Knows by the Beach Boys plays as the colonel is beaten and probably worse in prison. The Rodriguez Brothers nightclub, that's a Q, that's supposed to be a G, was because of a mistake in the screenplay. So Paul Thomas Anderson decided to make an extra comedic scene about that. And the musical montage advances the story instead of having people stare into the distance while nothing much of importance happens, like some streaming shows are guilty of. And yeah, two main things that I think about the film is intentional tackiness to the world. You know, I was watching it with someone and they thought, oh, this is, oh, this is quite tacky. And I thought, you know, these people are taking themselves, I don't know, they're taking it a bit too seriously. And I think the tackiness is intentional on the part of the filmmaking. You know, I mean, it's, I, I, I don't, I don't really expect that gravity from the porn world, you know, but you know what I mean. But at the same time, family's forever, no matter the circumstances. And even when Dirk is totally insane, he'll never forget the days with his pornography ensemble. So yeah, oh, this must be what twenty, thirty minutes by now on the podcast. <laughs> Hey, at least I don't do filler. Or very little filler if I do. But uh, yeah, if you want to know some of the songs that were in here, um, by name, Best of My Love, Sunny, Fly Robin Fly, Afternoon Delight, Jungle Fever, Brand New Key, Afterno- Afternoon Delight, plays very, very quietly when he's jumping on the bed, I think. Mama Told Me Not To Come, which I mentioned earlier, Spill The Wine, Fooled Around And Fell In Love, You Sexy Thing, Boogie Shoes, Magnet And Steel, Driver's Seat, Queen Of Hearts, Living Thing. And yeah. That's about all for this movie. So, yeah, overall, I really do enjoy this movie, Boogie Nights. And, of course, it uh, it's not for everyone because, you know, some people don't even want to watch a film that's about people involved in porn. And, you know, it, it depends on your taste, I guess. But, uh, yeah, as I always say at the end of the podcast, if you want to inspire, if you want to innovate, if you want to create, we need your voice because you can change things for the better. Peace out. Mike, drop.